Good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Uh, we are starting something new, and I'm really excited about it. So if you would, find your Bibles and find the book of Esther. The book of Esther. If you're wondering where that is, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So if you open up your Bible, you find the book of Psalms, go to the left a little bit, you'll be in Job. A couple more pages, you'll be in the book of Esther. We will spend a little more than half the semester in the book of Esther, and then we will spend the rest of the uh, semester in the book of Ruth. So we're going to take those two books together. Um, one is small. Esther is only 10 chapters long. Ruth is even shorter. Um, and so we'll knock both of those out this semester. And I think it's appropriate for a lot of reasons for us to consider uh, these two books. First of all, because they're Old Testament books, and it's about that time that we get back into the Old Testament after spending time looking at the Apostles' Creed, which is a lot of New Testament going on. We were in Galatians last summer. Um, we've been looking at the church in the fall, uh, which also is a lot of New Testament. And so it's good for us to get back into the old. Uh, we will not understand the, the, the magnitude of what's going on in the New Testament if we don't understand all the things that take place in the old, right? And the book of Esther is no different. But why do we start 2021 with a study of the book of Esther specifically? I think it's because I've decided it's because we're not as far apart as we think. If somebody could pull that door, that'd be great. Um, we're, we're not as far away from the Persian Empire, which is what we will see in force this morning in Esther chapter 1. This empire was strong, it was wealthy, it was influential, it was attractive, and it was idolatrous. The people of God in that day had to wrestle with twin temptations. On the one hand, they, had, they were either going to assimilate into the culture and renounce their status as God's covenant people, or they would fall into despair and become convinced by looking around at this pagan kingdom that seemed to control all things, become convinced that there was no hope for their redemption. God is invisible. His works are sometimes hard to detect. And often it seems as though he is not as near to us in comparison to the onslaught of the world. This is why we need the book of Esther. To cut through both of these temptations that the people of God faced hundreds of years ago and to cut through the temptations that we face today and chart a way forward as followers of Christ in a land that is not our home. So two ways this, book's help, this book helps us is by, first, making fun of the powers of the world, and number two, by showing the ordinary providence of God. So the, the world empire that we're going to see in this Persian kingdom, and especially personified in King Ahasuerus, that's how you say his name, Ahasuerus. You may have an NIV, and that translation will say Xerxes. It's just different languages translating a, a different language. Ahasuerus you might think that he is this all-powerful, invincible, almighty king, but what we're going to see in the book of Esther is that actually he is nothing but a bruised ego, petty, and a charade. So the book of Esther is supposed to make us laugh. And that's kind of difficult when we come to the scripture, right? It's, it's hard for us to imagine that, that th this book isn't always super serious. 
But the book of Esther is supposed to be funny. It's supposed to cause us to think uh, humorously about the things going on in the Persian kingdom. So it's going to make fun of the empire of the world. And the second way the book of Esther helps us is through seeing God's ordinary providence. You know, when we think of God's action in the world, we usually think of things like the Exodus, what we studied last spring. We think of thunder and lightning and plagues and parted seas and fire that falls from heaven. Or we think of the ministry of Jesus. We think of blind people being healed and paralytics walking and storms stopping with a word. But most of the time in our lives and most of the time in history, God's work is behind the scenes in the ordinary conversations and actions of our life. God is not explicitly mentioned in the book of Esther. So as we read through, you'll never see the Lord, God, Yahweh, but he's there. And he's always at work to display his glory and provide for his people. If the the battle of the book of Esther that we see in the book is between the most powerful kingdom of the world and the people of God with their God behind them, there is no competition. And we'll see that together this semester. So let's read chapter one this morning to kind of set the scene for the whole book of Esther. Let's start with verse one. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. But the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Let's stop there and pray before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for another opportunity to gather together as the people of God, to open up the Word of God and be transformed by the Spirit of God. God, we gather together because we are one in Christ. You have brought us together from before the beginning of time, and you knew by your sovereignty and your providence that this group of students and leaders would be here on this day to hear this Word. So Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Would you help us as we think about this book of Esther, how it is profitable for us because it is your word. Help us to understand it rightly and apply it to our lives well. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to see three kind of foundational uh, events that take place in Esther chapter 1 that sets up the whole book. So we're going to see, as the title suggests, the power of the world 
and the providence of God. So these kind of these two things to keep in mind as we go through chapter one this morning. The first is going to be that the empire is powerful, and that's your first point. You see this morning in Esther 1, verses 1 through 9, the empire's power. The empire's power. The book of Esther begins with this grand display of the Persian Empire and its king, Ahasuerus. He was king of the Medo-Persian Empire. And at this point in history, kind of early 5th century BC, it was the most powerful kingdom in the known world by far. It had conquered most of the other nations, which is why we read there in the first verse that he was over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, right? From middle of Asia to Africa, this guy was emperor. He sat on a royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Think a castle, right? A castle city and a castle within that castle city. This place is defended. It is impenetrable. It seems to be invincible. And we see in the third year of his reign, which is about 483 BC, Ahasuerus decided to hold a party for six months. So for six months, the king of this vast empire gathers together all of the people who have any kind of influence in his kingdom. And instead of ruling or legislating or serving or trying to progress the kingdom, they partied for 180 days. (laughs) I mean, every day they would just continue this display of the riches of the royal glory, as verse 4 tells us. And that's what Ahasuerus wants them to see. You see, what we don't know from Scripture, but what we do know from history is that the city of Athens and the surrounding area was the only place in the known world that Ahasuerus' empire did not control. And so it's interesting that we see here that all of the nobles and the governors and the army were brought to this palace, and for six months they were wined and dined the most beautiful things were put before them because Herodotus, an ancient historian, would tell us that Ahasuerus is trying to get them to join in a fight to take back Athens. And he wants them to see that if you follow me, if you follow my empire, if you follow my kingdom, you will be filled with delight. You'll be filled with blessing. Your riches will be abundant. His kingdom is great and glorious. And anyone who was anyone was there to see it and to experience it. He invited the whole citadel then, the whole city, after that six months was over, invited the whole city to join in on the party. Look at verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. For seven days after the six months, the whole place was in the party. So great and small were now able to see the most important people of the kingdom. Then we get to verses 6 and 7, and they give us a description that if you, you know, we're not 5th century Near Eastern folk, but the only other place where this kind of beauty and majesty is depicted with any kind of comparison is when we talk about the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. I mean, you think gold wine goblets, and not one of them is the same. All of them are different. Mosaic of precious stones and porphyry and mother of pearl on the floor. Things that you and I would consider our most valued possession for King Ahasuerus makes up his floor. 
that you walk on. It is unbelievably gaudy and majestic. It's supposed to impress us and kind of cause us to revolt. Like it's supposed to be impressive and repulsive. It's kind of like when you hear about like a, like a celebrity wedding. You know what I mean? Like you see all of this pomp and circumstance and all of this money that was spent. On the one hand, you're like, this is so impressive. This is beautiful. And then you think, wait, they paid how much money for this? It's in the same way the Persian Empire is to be seen by us, the reader, as both visually impressive and a bit revolting. Finally, in verse 9, we learn, probably because of cultural custom and because of the amount of people involved, that Queen Vashti is hosting a similar feast specifically for the women of the palace. So you have all the men in one area partying. You have all the women in another area. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn about the empire's power this morning from these first couple of verses? First, we see that the world is powerful. It's beautiful. It's desirable. And it's inescapable. Let me think, if you are an exile of the people of God in Israel, and you were exiled out to the Babylonian empire that's now the Medo-Persian empire, there is not a, a place that you could turn to that isn't controlled by a pagan king. There isn't a place that you can look that isn't under the control of someone who does not know or recognize your God. If you were in exile, you could not miss this display of worldly glory. Any hope of returning to your home would be met by those two temptations we talked about earlier. First, you'd be really tempted to assimilate because the, the glories of this world are attractive. I want to have a party for six months and I want to be able to walk on mother of pearl and precious stones and I want to be able to have gold furniture and gold chalices and as much drink and food and feasting as I want. And I can just renounce my faith in the God of Israel and join the empire. That's precisely what the Babylonians and the Persians had been trying to do ever since the exile began. You remember the, the book of Daniel, his story that he was taken from Israel and he was given an education in Babylon from the culture and their ways. He was offered rich food and drink. He was housed in royal places. In our own day, it's easy. It's easy for us to feel the pull of the world. It's easy for us to feel the pull of our culture and to assimilate, to, to get, give up what is unique to us, to give up what causes us to be set apart and instead just run in the same path as the world. Or if you're not tempted to assimilate, you are tempted to despair. Perhaps you're in Susa as an exile and you're watching this revelry and excess and you think, this is my life. This is my life. My leaders, instead of actually protecting us and serving us and providing for us, they've been sitting up in this castle for six months binging. This is, this is what I have. This is what it means to be an exile. My life is hopeless. This is hopeless. The same display of worldly glory also brings despair. So this is the glory of the empire of the world. It is powerful. It is attractive, it is tempting, but it is hollow. This will become more clear as we go on through the book. Let's keep reading, starting in verse 10. On the seventh day, 
So remember, six months party, seven day, everybody partying. At the end of the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, translation, not sober, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within them. If the first part of Esther chapter 1 shows us the empire's power, the next event we see setting us up for the book of Esther is the queen's refusal. The queen's refusal. That's our second point this morning. The queen's refusal from verses 10 through 12. So after this seven-day binge comes to a close, the king is not in the greatest frame of mind. And so he sends out seven eunuchs to go fetch the queen for him. Not to honor her, or because he needs her for something noble and royal, but because he wants to show her off. Like the possessions of the first section in Esther 1, King Ahasuerus wants to be seen as glorious for having a wife who is lovely to look at. So the king says, come in with your royal crown on so that the party guests can enjoy your beauty and know exactly whose you are. And she refuses. You can imagine the scene, right? Seven eunuchs going off and finding Queen Vashti and telling her what was going on and the request of the king for her to come in with the royal crown and them going back with their tails between their legs, going back to the king at this giant party, going up to the throne, whispering in his ear. Um, She said, no. Vashti, nowhere in sight. And she's not coming. The king has clearly objectified the queen. He is not treating her as a human. He is treating her like property. Now, we want to fill in the gaps as Christians reading this story. We want to be able to fill in the gaps and make statements about this scene that the author of Esther is really not interested in answering for us. So, was this scene of command and refusal, is this indicative of their marriage? Was this merely a drunken misstep that Ahasuerus normally wouldn't act like this, but because he was in an inebriated state, he did something stupid? Or was it a pattern of patriarchy and chauvinism and objectifying the women of the kingdom? We don't know. And Esther, the writer of Esther, doesn't think it very important to tell us. Or was was Vashti being noble in her refusal Or was she clearly intending to fight fire with fire? Oh, you're going to objectify me? Well, then I'm going to make you look like a fool. Was she standing up for all women in the empire? Or was she trying to just keep her own glory? Because she is not one to be objectified. She is the queen. We don't know. We don't know the thoughts of these characters. But what we do know is that the power of the king that was so clearly on display in the verse nine verses has been immediately snuffed out with a word. No. He can't even get his wife to come into a room. This king over all of these provinces doesn't even have authority over his own house. This refusal 
causes him to burn with anger. And that language in verse 12, he became enraged and his anger burned within him, is only reserved in the Old Testament for the righteous wrath of God. We cannot help but chuckle at the irony that this king who thinks himself divine can't even get his helpmate to come near to him. And his objectifying of her, his his excess of drunkenness, now he's the one burning with righteous anger. He's the one who's enraged. He's the one who feels that injustice has been done. The king of this world is no king at all. So we see the empire's power in the first nine verses. We see the queen's refusal. And then thirdly and finally, in verses 13 through 22, we see the empire's response. Spoiler alert, it's absurd. It's absurd. Let's keep reading in verse 13. Then the king, who was enraged and his anger was burning within him, Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marcina, and Mimukin, the seven princes of of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Pause. Uh, The fact that these princes saw the king's face means that they do not have to ask to go before the king. They just have access to him. That's important as we think about the story of Esther moving forward. Verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mimukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Hashashuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the, of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. What happens in this section is nothing short of insane. Like a child throwing a tantrum, Ahasuerus wants what he wants right now and he will do anything to get it. Now this is indicative of our sin. But it's also indicative of the opposite of what a king ought to be. There's a story, uh, Paul Washer, who's a really intense Bible teacher, told a story one time about uh, a baby uh, reaching for a watch on a man's hand, holding a baby, reaching for the watch. 
And he was trying to make the point that you and I are born in sin. We have original sin. We were conceived in iniquity, David tells us. It's not something that we learn. It's something innate to who we are as broken, fallen humanity. And he says, this baby is reaching for the watch. And so the dad says, no, no, and moves his hand away. And then the baby starts reaching for the watch a little bit more intensely because it's what he wants. And the baby, the dad says, no, no, and moves his hand even more forcefully. Now the baby's crying because the baby wants the watch, right? And so he starts like writhing in his dad's arms and is grasping for this watch with tears. And finally, his dad smacks him on the hand and tells him no. And at this point, the baby just loses it. Total meltdown. And Paul Washer says, if that baby was a grown man, he would kill his dad on the spot and take the watch. Because that baby is doing everything he possibly can to get what he wants. The only thing the dad has going for him is his baby weighs nine pounds and is small. And just like this king, just like this baby, you and I, if we are not careful, will be led straight into sin and do whatever we can to get what we want. And according to our deceitful, wicked hearts, usually what we want is not good. So Ahasuerus starts by appealing to the law. He's going to take the high road. He's going to ask the princes next to him who can interpret the law kind of however they see fit in order to please the king. And what we'll learn is that the power of the king is not moral. It's not consistent. It's not honorable. Throughout this story, the power of the king is arbitrary. It is used whenever it suits him. Now, these seven princes who have direct access to the king are advisors who have been given a task underneath the task, right? So the task is, hey, uh, princes, what should be done to Queen Vashti according to the law? The real task is, hey, princes, how are you going to help me keep my respect? How are you going to help me keep my, help me save face right now? Because I've been dishonored by the queen. So one of them comes up with an idea. Mamukin says, Queen Vashti has done wrong against the entire kingdom. Her refusal to come into this room is basically disrespect to not just you, King Ahasuerus, but the entire kingdom. Like, oh, King Ahasuerus, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that the, the queen refused to come in. No, 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 no. Actually, she's a model of rebellion that is in the spirit of all the women of the empires. It's, it's not your fault. It's actually you're suffering from a spirit of disobedience that's taken root and is infecting the nation and our wives. So you need to put a stop to it because King Ahasuerus, you have the power. Your kingdom is vast, Mimukin says. So he tells the king, put a stop to it. Write a royal decree. Send it out to all the provinces. Remove Vashti as queen and find someone better than she. I mean, look again at verse 19. To write a law so that it may not be repealed that Vashti, not Queen Vashti, Vashti. Even in the pronouncement, Mamukin has already removed Queen Vashti's title from her. And find someone better than she. Translation, find someone who will always submit to your authority, Ahasuerus. There's a ton going on here. We see a reversal of victim and perpetrator, right? Queen Vashti is now seen as the rebel, this model for some kind of disobedient spirit in the lives of women in the kingdom. We see a king who now thinks of himself at the expense of his people. We see a law that has no honor in it at all. 
Not to mention its absurdity. L- listen, what he's saying is, Ahasuerus, you should write a law and tell everyone in your kingdom that in every household, the man is the master and we're watching you. Like, how are they going to enforce this? How are they going to know? How are they going to make sure that this happens? They can't. There's no way in the world that they would be able to uphold a banana republic law like this, something so bogus as to say, I'm going to mandate by law. Here's how your household should work exactly like the king. Every man should be master in his own household or else. As if healthy marriages can be grown in a moment by royal fiat. We also see the farce of the empire. Instead of keeping the king's dishonor private, because listen, who did the king tell to go see Queen Vashti and bring her in? Seven eunuchs. Text doesn't tell us that he announced this to the whole party. So the seven eunuchs come in, they come back out, tell him no. Then he tells the princes, hey, so this just happened. What should we do? So now about... 14, 15, 16 people in the whole empire know of this story. And Mamukin's idea, let's send a letter to the entire empire telling them what happened so that your honor may be preserved, O king. I mean, they, they don't even understand that instead of keeping the king's dishonor private, they have announced it to the entire kingdom who would be none the wiser. As we search for meaning in this text, because right now it just seems like a crazy set of events in a kingdom that seems pretty far away from us, let me just point to you a few things. Notice that there are a lot of coincidences taking place that will ultimately lead to Esther's ability as queen to save the people of God from certain destruction. There are threads being woven together in this first chapter that in the midst of it don't seem very important at all. Like Queen Vashti's decision that of now of all times, I'm going to refuse the king and lose my throne, lose my crown. That now the king Ahasuerus has decided to bring all these people together and send out a royal decree about it. What seems just like a story about a wild king and a vast empire is actually preparing us to see God's deliverance. This is God's ordinary providence at work. Students, there are things happening in your life right now that if you would try to look at them, you would say, I don't understand how this connects to my life as a Christian. I don't understand how this event or this situation or this thing I'm going through or this struggle, I don't understand how it's supposed to make sense. And we recognize just anecdotally, if you think about our own lives, providence is best seen looking back. Right? I look back at my life and I think, oh, that's why I moved here instead of here. Oh, that's why my family went this to this thing instead of that thing. Oh, that's why I took this class and met this person instead of that class and that person. Providence is at work. Second, notice that the powers of this world are very attractive. They are very desirable, but they are ultimately laughable. Ian Duguid called Ahasuerus in his commentary, he called his empire a glittering hologram. 
This is a beautiful picture. Something that catches our eye. It's beautiful. It's attractive. But there's nothing of substance there. It's a hologram. It's not real. It's pretty to look at, but no real substance. And as exiles in a land that is not our home, we can remember by reading this chapter of Esther to not take the bait. What we think will satisfy us will ultimately bring us to death. What, will, what we think is going to bring us comfort will actually bring us into greater discomfort. Don't assimilate into the powers that ultimately won't prevail. But neither should you despair and believe that in this life all is hopeless. So when we find ourselves allured away towards the things of this world, perhaps a biblical response to our foolishness is to laugh. Just laugh at ourselves for a bit, not take it too seriously, turn back to Christ and run towards what we know to be real and solid and lasting. Because third, we know that there is a better king and a better kingdom. There is a king who lays down his own life for the good of his people. One who enters into a reversal, but the opposite of a Hashuerus. Our better king takes the sin and wickedness and disobedience of his people, and he gives them his righteousness, his honor, his glory. Rather than objectify and use his bride like property for his own gain, he gives his life for her and sanctifies her. This better king will be seen in other ways all throughout this book if we have eyes to see. Students, Esther is for you. It's profitable. It's God-breathed. And if we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear, the Spirit of God will do a work in us as we read this story together. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm thankful in confessing through studying this text that there are some books of Scripture that are harder to understand. And so, Lord, I'm thankful because it reminds me that I am dependent on You. But by the work of Your Holy Spirit, God, all of us can see what is clearly in front of us, what You are telling us in Your Word, that there is a better King, that there is a better kingdom, that you are always working for your glory and the good of your people, even in circumstances that seem mundane, ordinary, not special. You are always at work. So God, help us to, to know that, to internalize that, to remind ourselves of that when things are going well, when things are going terribly, and when things are going just okay. Your nearness to us has not changed. Your investment in our lives have, has not changed. You are working all things for good. God, I pray that our conversations over the next few minutes would be encouraging, challenging, edifying, transformative for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.